How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Indulge me for a moment, if you will, and listen to these words. I'm deeply sorry, miss, but despite all of our efforts, your husband has died. As responders, how many times have we used these or similar words to a mourning family member on a scene? How many times have you avoided the situation entirely? How many times have you felt comfortable or confident in saying these things? Death Communication, What We've Failed to Teach is an article featured in the March issue of EMS World and is an absolute must read. With me today to discuss this article is the author, Ms. Alexandra Jobber. Alex is the founder of Emergency Resilience. A paramedic with a master's degree in death, grief, and bereavement, she focuses on her business on educating and improving the mental and behavioral health of first responders. Alex, thanks so much for coming on with me today. Thank you, Mike. It's really good to be here. Alex, this piece is brilliant. It's well-written. It provides great background and statistical analysis, but most importantly, it focuses on an obvious deficiency in our profession. And in my estimation, it's consciously avoided. Tell me a little bit about the research that you have done on this topic specifically. Oh, well, thank you for that compliment. I appreciate you recognizing that first and foremost. And, you know, it's kind of interesting when you're embarking on something like this, it can be incredibly intimidating to look around at all the professionals around you and wonder, okay, why has nobody talked about this yet before? So there was several years of hesitation to even jive into it because I thought, well, if it was that important, somebody would have talked about it by now. And so most of my research has been um, done in a, in a way that I kind of had to create the curriculum that didn't exist for first responders. So I had to take a lot of books on grief and death and bereavement that might have been written for somebody who works in hospice care or the hospital and translate how that looks and benefits a first responder by merging it with my own personal experiences in my career. It's interesting, right? Let's dive into that a little bit. I think that it's globally accepted as being uncomfortable. And as such, we try to rationalize by saying we need to focus on more important things like tactical type things, how to intubate, how to start that IV, how to start that IO, because that is going to get us the results that we need. We almost just endorse this ourselves as being uncomfortable and let's just ignore it. Uh, What are your thoughts? I I think we like to focus on the things that we can control. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to this thing, I mean, it is such a dynamic, um, I mean, no two calls are the same, but when you're literally taught that after delivering this news, your job is to do nothing but allow them to react, allow them to cry, allow them to break down. Um, There's an underlying sense of failure that that comes with teaching this. And I I think that that has been it, maybe not consciously, but definitely subconsciously, we have associated uh, this feeling with failure. I can tell you personally that 
you know, in, early in my career, my goal was just to get them to the hospital so that the doctor could be the one to pronounce them and deliver the bad news to the family. Then it wasn't on me, right? You know, it's it's so true. I mean, I'm I'm chuckling and I'm not chuckling because it's funny. I'm chuckling because it is real. It's um, absolutely you know, real. And, and we we've all done it. I mean, and and my next question was going to be psychologically: Are we doing this? Are are we avoiding this because we are admitting failure in our profession? Are such perfectionists that we can't admit failure. There can't be that chink in our mm. armor. And that is what we do. We do on a daily basis. And it's almost that normalization of deviance. Like we just realize that that's not right, but it's accepted. And that's how we move forward. That's why to me, this article is so compelling and it's so important because it's actually showing our vulnerabilities. And vulnerability is something that we don't do well with in this no. profession. We compartmentalize and we, you know, harden ourselves. It's all about this, right? It's it's all about this type of uh, deception on our part. Yeah. And what you just described was armoring up. You know, we feel if we, and this comes straight from the work of Brene Brown, if you're familiar with her work, but I am. Uh, she's, awesome. oh, she's amazing. And, you know, there's this idea that vulnerability and courage or uh, I think it's vulnerability and courage are on these um, spectrums of opposites and they they really aren't like she says to to be courageous to show up like that you you have to be vulnerable but it's so uncomfortable and trust me as someone who's an advocate and you know believes in the word that she's talking about there's nobody that loves to avoid uncomfortable conversations more than me I, I have an avoidant personality and so a lot of this comes from a place of knowing how the most difficult person tune into this message is going to receive it. Um, you know, the, the idea that this is a new responsibility for us is false. This has always been our responsibility. This has always been something that we've swept under the rug, that we've continuously told ourselves and newcomers that, you know, we got to show the family that we tried and we just got to go to the hospital and this is what's best for them. And in reality, that was just what was best for us and kept us from being uncomfortable in that moment. Um, but like all things, and you, you mentioned psychology, so I'll bring this into the conversation is, you know, there's a you know, theory by Carl Jung who says, um, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you'll call it fate. And what that essentially means is so long as you keep ignoring that elephant in the room, he's going to continue directing that call, whether you realize it or not. And so that's where stuff like, you know, uh, the call getting away from you, things getting, you know, uh, going a little sideways on scene. Um, somebody may be grieving the loss of the patient, which, you know, not necessarily your 96 year old grandma, but your four year old drowning might leave an imprint. That's where that stuff comes up. And so long as we continue to ignore that it's there, um, it's going to kind of create a pulse of its own and do its own thing. Yeah. And the perception is is crazy all around. Let's be honest, we ignore it, right? But the perception from those that we really rely on, like like you say, we go, we race to the hospital so that they can do it. Their take on it is that, oh, well, you know, we have to give the patient the best chance and we're about hope and and you're not. This is more about, you know, doom and gloom. You know, I, I, I bring that up because we spoke offline and I thought that it was really, really interesting story that you had. And I'll let you share it because no names or anything like that. But I just think it was an interesting type of take on how this all plays out in the minds and the psyche of, uh, of healthcare professionals. Oh, well, thank you for bringing that up. It's, it's really funny, actually. Um, 
So yes, we, we do tend to hot potato the patient and kind of make it somebody else's problem by telling ourselves, well, they're the ones that are, you know, trained on this. And in reality, none of us are trained on it. I mean, not doctors, not nurses. And a piece I think I, I don't know if I mentioned to you before was that when people take my course, um, there's an intake survey that says who out of these five professionals is the most, you know, whose job is this essentially in your opinion? Most paramedics and EMTs think it's a doctor's job. And the doctors who have taken my course say it's a nurse's job. So everybody's just kind of blindly thinking like, no, it's someone else's job. And then nobody does it. Right. Um, and, and that's where we're at. And so there's a, there's a Ted talks by this physician and I can't remember his name right now. Um, but he talks about how, if, if you want to avoid death then medical school is a great place to be, because if you can't defy it, you just deny it outright. And he talks about this like incredible sensation of like failure. So you just kind of avoid it altogether. And so last year I got to participate. Um, I was a speaker. I was slated to be a speaker at EMS World and everything kind of got moved online. And I was very grateful to be able to still participate in a little 15 minute segment with three other physicians, remarkable people, um, very talented, very, very honored to be a part of it with them. And we're kind of, and I say this with complete respect because I, I genuinely think it was beneficial to hear this particular uh, feedback from one of the physicians. And we we're kind of trying to figure out what our lineup was. And I, I essentially thought that maybe I should go last out of the four of us because of the fact that, you know, mine kind of closes everything up. Hey, when it doesn't work, here's what you do and here's what to expect. And his exact response was, you know, Alexandra, I, I know I, I hear what you're saying, um, but our, our, lectures are about giving hope and yours is about giving up on hope. So we just don't want to leave the audience depressed at the end. And it took everything I had not to laugh because I didn't want him, you know, we didn't know each other like that, but I, I genuinely appreciated hearing his honest response because of the fact that I went, Oh, this is where we got it from. Nurses and doctors are where paramedics and EMTs came from. This is who taught us. And this is where we inherited that attitude towards death. hundred percent. And that candid nature brought about that realization that, wow, this is what's happening. And yeah. although we're trying to turf it off to others, they are believing and, and they're perpetuating this myth that that's not hopeful. If you tell somebody that family member died, that's just reality. And listen, we are all victim of doing it. But nobody really wants to take the reins and say that somebody's family member died. And, and, you know, I think that it's important to go into a little bit about the process because you talk about it in the article and, and, and I also have reviewed a little bit of, of your stuff online. You know, there's certain ways to go about it. And again, with the uncomfortable nature of things, we like to, we don't even like to say the word died, right? Mm -hmm. Like passed on, passed away, you know, mm -hmm. that, that type of stuff. And and that almost hinders the message in many cases, right? Yes. And and what I do to clarify this with people is I say, you know, if I'm getting to know somebody for the first time and they ask where my parents are, I'm going to say my mom passed away when I was 18. Like in a social setting, totally acceptable. There's nothing wrong with saying passed away or, um, you know, whatever word you want to fill in the blank for. In a setting, in a professional setting, in a clinical setting where the person who's receiving your words is in a fight or flight mode or, resp you know, responding to this acutely stressful situation. 
they're not going to hear the gray area. You have to be black and white. You have to be blunt. You have to say they're dead. They died. And it's uncomfortable and it's the right thing to do. And it's strange in the same breath that we are that uncomfortable in saying it. And it's only strange because we do it and and we and we're doing it wrong all the time because again it's not really much about the patient it's about us and our feelings of being uncomfortable and vulnerable and just trying to get the hell out of that situation right you know say as much as you can give a pat on the shoulder and make sure that you get out of that house as quickly as possible and not allowing ourselves to be part of that moment because in my opinion we're relinquishing responsibility for a duty that has as much relevance, if not more than our clinical objectives, because no family member is going to remember the last moments as being an intubation attempt or the compressions that are done or the IO that's put in, but more so how you presented those final words to them about their family member, their loved one dying. That's what they'll take with them. That's what they'll remember. So if we're not doing that the right way, then we're doing that family a disservice, in my opinion. Truly. And, you know, one of the lies I told myself was that if the family was watching and the patient died, which still happens 90% of the time, despite all of our advancements, then they were going to blame me. Because something I did wrong. And in reality, like you said, they're not paying attention to the innovation. They don't pay attention to the IV being pulled out to a med error, to a missed tube, to, you know, being off the chest longer than, you know, five seconds or 10 seconds or whatever. They don't see any of that when they're a family member. And it doesn't matter if they've got a clinical background or not. Um, ultimately, they will remember how well they were taken care of. And people remember the final experience. And if their final experience with you was you rushing off to the hospital with, you know, um, not getting anything established and just kind of passing over like a set of hot potato just to get off scene, then that's what that, that is an incomplete feeling they're going to be left with. And there is a lot of closure that comes from the family by being able to sit and talk to the person that showed up when their world turned upside down. I mean, think about put yourself in a position where you found out somebody died. What are the first things that go through your head? You want to know who, what, when, where, why, who responded, what happened, how long were they, you know, down? Did they, you know, were they found in this condition? You want to know all these things. Now put yourself in a position where you're that family member. Now you're the person who could offer that golden information to help them start grieving. And the problem is when we leave those questions unanswered, they will ultimately create conclusions themselves. And that's where, you know, skewed public perception comes from. That's where blaming themselves come from. I mean, it, it can create a lot of unnecessary distress that we have an ability to relieve for them. Absolutely. And as interesting as it is, as we try to avoid these situations, your research that you outlined in your article certainly shows that we crave more formalized training for the pre-hospital industry with respect to this. Yeah, I was very surprised to find how many articles, actually, I wasn't surprised to find that this was researched in terms of where the deficiency was because, but I was surprised at how far back it went. 
So out of all the studies that I've pulled where they evaluate the curriculum of paramedic programs, and this is just paramedic programs. I haven't, you know, this isn't, I'm not even talking the nursing and, and physician, which they've, they've observed as well. But in the paramedic programs, every single one of them said, we don't have enough training on this. We need more of it. This is one of the hardest parts of the job. And yet we continue to ignore it. I've got studies dating back and articles dating back to the 1980s. We're almost four decades. We're almost four decades into this was before I was born. Guys, like, why are we waiting? Yeah, we're, this we're getting to it, Alex. Yeah. Don't rush these things. I know, right? Like, why? Oh, you know, I'm... it'll happen eventually. I know you're being sarcastic, but it's. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but I'm like, yes, I, I think am. now I can be put. I think when I saw that, I I realized, okay, guys, enough's enough. Like we've waited long enough. Uh, we can only be so avoidant uh, for so long. At some point, there is a duty to act and create this shift in our culture so that we can better impact the crews that show up when it's our turn. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about Emergency Resilience, uh, the company that you started when you first realized that this was your passion. Obviously, you've been a paramedic since 2003, and you've been involved in emergency medical services and, and education. But you started this really to combat what it is we're talking about today, to really dive in on on this gap that exists. Yeah, I um I got into this field right after high school. I went to EMT school in 03 and um it's really all I've ever done. I started teaching almost 10 years ago, but about the last seven years pretty in depth um in a paramedic program, a couple of them. And I, I like to joke that this company really started out of frustration because, you know, everywhere that I worked, whether it was for the fire department or um, ambulance or within my own college, it was always, there's never enough time. Well, we don't really have time for this. We can't squeeze this in. And um, I just realized there's all these marginal topics that we're ignoring that people want more of. And so it was one of those things where I thought, well, throw the party and the people will come. So I, you know, started working more diligently on this course. I had been giving it um, locally within my kind of backyard and to local fire departments and whatnot. And then finally, I just decided to um, put it into an online format so its message could, you know, expand a greater reach. Um, the intention of Emergency Resilience is to be an educational platform that creates um really kind of a spotlight for these marginal topics, like I said, and, and death communication is just one of them. And so my focus is really occupational resilience, um, kind of proactive, preventative solutions to, um, you know, the PTSD that's facing our field today. And death communication is just a small piece of it. I mean, granted, just because somebody dies on a call doesn't mean you're going to get PTSD, but it is a little thread in a bigger, you know, bigger image of what what potentially could be um, contributing to that. And so here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think you're focusing on on the human element uh, to our job. And, and that's, that's certainly commendable because we struggle. We struggle with it. We, we act like robots. We're robotically charged. We learn things. We do things. And then we don't process things well. That's just us. And, um, you know, I think that what you're doing is, is you're, you're bringing in awareness and awareness and acceptance obviously fosters change. And, and that's the hope 
the hope is that that awareness and then the acceptance of what we are not doing well fosters that change. And Alex, again, it was a great read. And anybody that has not read this article in the March issue needs to do so, you know, not just for themselves or for their, you know, but for their agency, for their partners, for their colleagues. These are things that we need to start taking very seriously. And let's be honest, times are not getting any easier. We are now living through a COVID pandemic that is, has taken the lives of so many people in, in this country and in this world. And we, as responders, are invited to the show. We're, we're front line. We're right there. How we process this is going to drive how we are as providers moving forward. So it's, it's incredibly relevant. Uh, it's incredibly interesting. And, and Alex, again, I really do appreciate you coming on with us today. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the conversation. And uh, yeah, let's just keep it going. Absolutely. A couple uh, important reminders for you, uh, the listeners. We have two exciting events coming up. One this week, EMS World Spring, March 3rd to the 5th. Register today to earn those credits for 331 for your refresher. Get it done. It's this week. And of course, EMS World Expo, live and in person, October 4th through the 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. We will be there. I know Alex will be there as well. Uh, we look forward to seeing everybody. Yep. Again, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. See you next time on another episode of EMS World Podcasts. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 